0: Hey, everybody. The Line Podcast is back. This is Matt Gurney. Jen Gerson is with me. It is February the 16th, 2024. And for the next hour or so of your time, we will be issuing well-deserved and very hearty fuck yous to a vast cross-section of Canadian society. We're going to talk to the environment minister and why he... We'll talk Should about you? him. We're going to talk about uh, a protest outside of Toronto Hospital and Jen having fun if that's the term on Parliament Hill. All that and more, plus a few hearty fuck yous in the latest episode of The Line Podcast. Well, I'm swearing in the intro already, um, which is probably a sign of the kind of podcast to come. You and I both want to start with, I guess we'll call it a programming
1: note. We're recording this uh, on the Friday before the family long day weekend. Which means that all of the schools have decided that today's a really great day to have a parent or a teacher's Uh conference. Here in Alberta, we got a teacher's conference both on Thursday and Friday. So we have a five-day weekend right in the middle of February, which is fantastic for working parents. Really just appreciate that so much. Thank you.
0: Our our kids are home and you may be hearing from them over the course of this podcast.
1: Also, Uh, you may be hearing a sudden cutout of noise from my side where I yell at my children to shut the hell up
0: no that would never happen
1: no I do love my kids very much they're very
0: uh, they're wonderful children they're just loud uh my mm-hmm. we actually had some snow in Toronto so mine I have exiled to go outside and play in the snow for a while hopefully we can get this thing done in a reasonably concise period uh, speaking of minding the children someone needs to get our invi- federal environment minister under control
1: usually probably one of those little leashes from the 70s the harnesses that go oh, right that look them. like
0: backpacks but they're actually uh-huh. leashes
1: correct what yeah. did Gabot say this week that managed to throw everyone into quite the tizzy? He, if I
0: recall, it was last week he said it. It was a conference in, I think it was in Montreal, talking about environmental policy and amid broader uh, comments on kind of the, the government's efforts to decarbonize and, and move Canada off fossil fuels, the minister said this, and I'll, I'll beg the indulgence of the listeners and the viewers just here for a second here. I want to read the quote uh, precisely, and I actually have it written down here. I just got to scroll and find it. This is the quote. Our government has made the decision to stop investing in new road infrastructure.
1: So, <laughs> so, so very wrongly, the terrible, misinformed critics of the government uh, read that as uh, the environment minister announcing that the government had planned to stop investing in new road infrastructure.
0: Yeah, it was it was, um, it was a very uh, ill considered and rude and uncharitable interpretation of the minister saying we won't build new roads to interpret that as meaning
1: they won't build new roads you know what? what I mean can you do you want to specify what he really meant was because he tried to walk that one back and yeah. to give a more clarification he didn't say well we weren't gonna it's not that we're not going to spend any money on any roads at all ever it means that we're not going to build really we'll be big a funding new partner road,
0: in large new freeways yeah large that's, new
1: freeways yeah
0: which is a classic example of why a conservative operative told me a couple of years ago that they wanted Stephen Guibault to be the minister of everything, because he's the easiest minister in this government to run against.
1: Right. So let, let's break this. But let's break this down for just a minute here. Do we have
0: to, or can we just you no know, scream?
1: No. We, well, we can do both. But can we break it down first, and then scream? You insist. Okay. Because let's also remember that. Firstly, I mean, I had some people when I was making jokes about this on Twitter, because it was absolutely the sort of thing that I would shitpost about on Twitter, uh, I was DMed, polite very politely DM'd by people who had been formerly kind of connected with Gibo saying, Well, you may want to look at the quote a little bit, don't fall for the spin on this. Um, and I was like Fall for my spin. Yeah, fall for my spin instead. I was like, No no no, the the, the quote's pretty clear in terms of what he meant here and yeah then I got a lot of, well, you well, you do know that the, the the roads are really provincial and municipal jurisdiction. And I'm like, yes, I am aware that roads are generally provincial and municipal jurisdiction. And would we like to roll back to a strictly constitutional and uh, traditionally based um, division of powers between provincial and and federal jurisdiction? Because I know several provinces who would be thrilled if the federal government would get its fingers out of a couple of provincial highs uh-huh. alberta among them i'm thinking no new pipelines act i'm thinking electric grid i'm thinking um carbon taxes i'm thinking emissions caps i'm thinking of a whole rain oh and oh remember not so long ago we had the prime minister himself reminding everybody that housing was not really a federal uh, responsibility when he suddenly realized that outside the election period that fixing housing was a really hard problem you can't this federal government has been absolutely desirous of of entering into areas yeah. of provincial jurisdiction when it suits them they're perfectly happy to build a new road and have their like you know um uh, signs put up next to that new road when it suits them or when it fits their own transit um, ambitions or anything else so and generally the the provinces have been happy to accept envelopes of money in exchange yeah. for that so look you can't just say well wait a minute roads aren't our real problem when it doesn't suit you or five minutes after your environment minister has decided to make it his problem by talking about it in the first place so
0: I got I have two quick responses to this and first of all my first hearty fuck you in in a Mm -hmm. spirit of openness and generosity goes to anyone in and around Minister Guibault uh or in his orbit who is making the it's not really our jurisdiction anyway in that case, I look forward to the federal government not showing up at the next health care announcement, even if it's mm-hmm. putting in billions of dollars. I look forward sure. to the federal government no longer commenting on law enforcement issues because law enforcement is a provincial or municipal issue. I look forward to um, not seeing the government uh, show up at any construction or infrastructure problem uh, project that is in the, in the provincial jurisdiction here. Like the idea... <laughs> What do I keep telling you, Jen? Like None of us are under any obligation to take unserious things seriously. And the okay. suggestion that the federal government is absorbing some, in, uh, observing some incredibly strong you know, firewall between levels of jurisdiction. Juris- I'll tell you exactly what the jurisdictional divide in this country is used for. It's to hide from bad news, but the divide disappears when there's an opportunity to show up. And smile at a press conference with a big right. novelty check. Yeah. So the feds do not give the slightest shit about jurisdictional issues when they see either a wedge opportunity or a good news story, which is why the prime minister was in town just, I think, a few days ago announcing with Doug Ford billions more for Ontario health care, a provincial matter of jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is just one of those things where our politicians have figured out how to have their cake and eat it, too. When it's good news, they're happy to be on the team. When it's bad news, ain't our problem. And that this is? is the minister stepping, you Thank know, you. Th- that's the other thing that pisses me off about this. Anyone who wants to make the argument, well, hey, it's not really our jurisdiction, then someone tell the fucking minister, because he was <laughs> up there going, beep, 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 beep. like, a gaffe is stupid on its own merits. A gaffe outside your jurisdiction is next level stupid.
1: Okay, so then on that note, let's, let's, let's. Break it down a little bit further and talk about what new what he's really saying is like and subscribe no like and subscribe no new federal funding for major freeways and road style projects what that actually actually why that's a bad idea okay because I know there are going to be people who predominantly live in downtown cities saying well we don't want new freeways out into the suburbs so that's good we don't want to be incentivizing the wrong kinds of roads for the wrong kinds of lifestyles and the wrong kinds of Uh, living movements and have fun with that argument while we're bringing in more than a million people a year and desperately need to radically expand out our our housing infrastructure like you can't have an extremely high pro-immigration policy with very very rapid population growth. i think we're top in the g7 in terms of population growth while at the same time not investing in major new road infrastructure that's insane unless you're living into some kind of delusional fantasy that you're going to bring in what up to 100 million canadians or have a have city have canada be a country of 100 million canadians in these extremely highly dense small apartment type you know living environments that are that that are are championing you know high density cities that are connected by electric trains or something and i know that there are some urbanists among us who who want to see that But I would like to point out that Canada is probably one of the least densely populated nations on earth. Not everybody actually wants to live that lifestyle. We have the space and wealth to create suburbs, rural types of communities, small towns. We can have a whole bunch of different varieties of built environments. But if we're going to do that, we are going to need to expand a road network.
0: No, no, never, never. You know, the funny thing is, like I said a minute ago, that a gaffe is bad enough on its own merits. But a gaffe outside your jurisdiction is, is, dub- is like double the stupid. But let, let's go for stupid rung number three. Thank you, okay. Minister Gibo. Sure. In his broader comments, he is also directly attacking other government initiatives. Because First of all, let us assume that the federal government no longer wishes to be active in the development of new roads. Let's also read the comments somewhat charitably. Let's not assume it's a maximalist, not one more dollar. Let's assume it's more as the spin eventually emerge. Well, we don't want to be building new freeways to the middle of nowhere. A huge thing that this government has been working on and talking about has been a policy of critical minerals and natural resource extractive projects to build out green tech industries and to support allies besieged abroad. Sure. Are are we going to... Are we going to build giant like trebuchets at the mining sites and then <laughs> hurl the rocks to the port of Vancouver? Like what what the fuck? The, and then the is, other part. Like so it's just basically like the natural resources minister is probably looking at what the environment minister is saying really
1: going Why are we losing it? Like because we, that, like one that's of the things the kind of road infrastructure that it makes most sense for the federal government to, to be build part and support of. And it would be driving roads through pristine boreal forests. Yeah. Like that, like it's the road infrastructure in addition to like, okay, so there's going to be some suburban areas where you're going to want to build freeways in order to mitigate congestion in order to expand the suburbs and various different types of built, Cities that you're going to need to support your immigration policies, but there's also the types of road networks that you're going to need through rural communities, and especially also I will note First Nations communities, communities. many of which are very underconnected to the. And would love network. a road. And would love a road that doesn't rely on melt. Yeah, many of them. But also, like if you are trying to increase the production of certain types of crucial resources, rare earths, natural gas, etc creating roads to get those resources access to ports is a is an obvious place for the federal government to be contributing (laughs) (laughs) no it's just
0: gonna build the big trebuchets and we're just gonna big
1: trebuchet okay (laughs) cool we're just
0: gonna fire it all and we're gonna aim it in the general direction of ports
1: can we get into the fourth rung of stupid now
0: well i i don't know if this is fourth or related to the third okay but in his broader because basically like so having first of all gaffed having gaffed outside of his jurisdiction and having gaffed in a way that directly impinges other elements of federal policy. And you Mm -hmm. can decide if this is more of the same, or if this is a fourth rung of this, he also kind of kept going. And I I don't have these, I don't have this part written down verbatim. I read the original quote verbatim Mm -hmm. because it's being contested. And I just wanted to put it on the record, what he actually said, but he also made comments about electric vehicles about how that was uh, the
1: fourth rung of stupid. I was going to go for here.
0: Depending how you want to define it, it's either third or fourth. But he basically said, you know, EVs aren't going to be perfect because they still, you know, they still have environmental consequences. They still have congestion. They clog up the roads. Skepticism about the path, about the importance of EVs to our decarbonized future, is one hell of a thing to see. From a minister of a government that has committed tens of billions of taxpayer dollars over multiple decades to build EV (laughs) production facilities in this country.
1: I just can't.
0: So he gaffs. He gaffs outside his jurisdiction. He gaffs in a way that impugns our natural resource strategy. And then he also comes in with an unforeseen side criticism of one of the leading environmental and also job creation development initiatives that his government has been embarking on. Oh, and by the way, just while we're talking jurisdiction, those are also joint federal provincial agreements to defer and waive taxes. And can
1: I, can I make one final comment on this and then we can take the rungs of stupid on to the next topic? Okay. One final comment on this yeah. is these sorts of comments are highly indicative of an extremely bubble-ridden sort oh, of yeah, yeah, government yeah. class of people yeah. who mm-hmm. want and expect everyone else to want to live lifestyles that are very like theirs. And the lifestyles that they live and want to live are predominantly downtown, highly urban. I mean, Christia Freeland makes a point of, well, I bike, you know, I bike to my downtown thing. I walk to my house. Um, I can get access to my groceries. I live within walking distance of, of a good, of a nice grocery store. And that's fine if you a want that lifestyle and b are wealthy enough to afford it because most Canadians can't afford anything like that kind of lifestyle, even if they did want it. And secondly, it just doesn't reflect the fact that a lot of Canadians live in highly car dependent suburbs or in rural areas and want to live in highly car dependent areas and rural suburbs and all the rest and that in a country as wealthy and as how shall I say. Abundantly supplied with space, we should be able to accommodate a really wide range of different lifestyles and approaches to living and housing like the the idea that that a place like Canada is going to have nothing but Brooklyn like downtown cities connected by trains like that's not that's not reality we're we're, that's not a a real realistic reflection of the people of the culture or of the economic situation that Canada actually finds itself in like you you run into people who it sounds like what they want is they want to turn Canada into a high density version of Norway or a Nordic country where everybody's living in in small apartments in small cities and, and radically reducing their carbon footprint and you know those types of cultures and those types of built environments are reflections of the physical environment in which those those cultures exist Canada's GEOGRAPHIC REALITY IS DIFFERENT AND OUR PEOPLE ARE DIFFERENT AND OUR DEMANDS AND NEEDS ARE DIFFERENT AND I WOULD EVEN SAY THAT IF YOU WANT TO MAINTAIN CANADA AS A COMPELLING COMPETITIVE PLACE TO BRING IMMIGRANTS AS I THINK THAT WE DO um, NOT ONLY DO YOU NEED TO radically IMPROVE YOUR HOUSING STOCK RAPIDLY AND QUICKLY BUT ONE OF THE GREAT COMPETITIVE ADVANTAGES THAT WE HAVE OVER OTHER WESTERN NATIONS IS OUR SPACE WE CAN BUILD HOUSES WE CAN PROVIDE PEOPLE NICE single-family detached houses with yards, if that's what they want. We don't act, we're not artificially hemmed in. And, and if you can sort of um, uh, marry that to improve traffic congestion, improve city planning and EVs, there's no reason why that can't be an attainable, relatively carbon neutral lifestyle in a country like Canada. So the idea that there's only going to be one type of building, only one type of lifestyle, I mean, I'm looking at that. I, I mean, I, also, I, I get weirder as I get older, I get more wanting to like bug out to a cabin in the woods somewhere. But if you were to tell me that my future is going to have to be living downtown Toronto in a 300 square foot loft apartment, I'd be, no, I don't want that. I don't want that for me in the future. That's not, Jen, that's not yeah. what I want.
0: Jen gets you know? off a plane in Costa Rica four hours later. Like <laughs> yeah, someone... exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's right? exactly, exactly to your point. Um, So I mentioned already, we actually had, wow, we had winter in Toronto. We actually had a big blast of snow yesterday. And because it's Toronto and because the roads are jammed anyway, a little bit of snow plus Toronto rush hour equals just pandemonium. And the snow, unfortunately, was coming down in the height of rush hour. And I was downtown yesterday for some meetings and I was on transit and basically got to the point where I realized people outside were walking faster than the bus. Mm -hmm. So I stuck it out on the warm bus to the next, uh to the closest major stop to my house normally i can get off the bus about 200 feet from my house because uh, mm-hmm. that there's a bus stop there but i thought to myself this is gonna be a 20 minute walk or an hour and a half crawling through traffic yeah. so i hopped out and i did the 20 minute walk and i was sure. cold because i should have brought a top coat but i didn't um
1: weird that way what is it with you in coats it's so weird
0: me yeah. or men generally men
1: men all of you no i assumed
0: exception. i would be in the bus right to my doorstep basically and that i would need to suck it up in my like jack like my business jacket for like 200 feet turns out it was several kilometers anyway the point is in toronto hopping out at the next closest bus stop to my house that's 10 minute walk 20 minutes in bad weather imagine doing that in most of the suburbs where the buses only run every hour and there's Mm -hmm. miles between bus stops yep and you know (laughs) I was grateful for the fact that I'm like, I will suck it up. I will tough it out. I'll stay warm in the bus until we get to Bayview Avenue, which will be the, I know we'll get there. And then ultimately what they were doing at that stop, they were turning the buses around because they couldn't get up the hill. Because uh, of the, the, the snow. The, let's and start, I start. home from there.
1: But this is also a reflection of a class diva- disparity, right? And 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 really. the, the problem with a government that can't, that is class blind, right?
0: Completely class blind.
1: Completely class blind, because the fact that you could get out of a bus stop and walk home in 20 minutes is a luxury of somebody who's living in a particular
0: transit dense neighborhood
1: transit dense neighborhood, which tend to be ironically, in Canada, higher class neighborhoods. You know, like if you are in a middle class or a lower class neighborhood, chances are you aren't living in a transit dense neighborhood and you don't have those luxuries. So the idea, the idea that like, okay, so, so we're we're going to bring in a whole bunch of immigrants per year where that's going to put an enormous amount of pressure on the whole housing stock. It's going to increase, radically increase the, the cost of housing downtown and completely push anybody who's middle class or below out of any kind of high density downtown area. You're going to be pushed into the suburbs in order to have a place you can raise your kids. Um... Uh, We're going to underfund the road network so that you can't actually uh, enjoy congestion because congestion is part of the punishment for pushing you into more affordable housing. And let's be honest, we're not also we're not supplying any of these places with appropriate transit or because we can't because the density just isn't there. Um, And uh, good luck if you don't like spending two, three hours a day in traffic getting to and from places in in anything resembling a city, because we're not because in order to disincentivize you from the bad lifestyles that you have no other choice but to have. We're not going to fund new road networks like that's that's the message that they're actually giving. But because a lot of these people are so class blind, they don't understand that that's the message you're giving. Why can't you all just live in downtown Toronto in in a nice walkable neighborhood like you're supposed to? That's actually what it is.
0: So this is, this is the transportation version of Christian Freeland's family yeah. canceling Disney plus.
1: Right. That's right.
0: It's, Oh, so, you know, just for, we'll move on after this, but this is years ago. Now, um, my, I didn't have kids yet um, purely as an experiment, because when I was at the post, I was on the editorial board, but I was also one of the columnists in the Toronto section. Mm-hmm. So those columns wouldn't run nationally. Those were Toronto, uh, GTA area four page inserts into the paper that would, would go abroad. And just, there was some debate about this kind of like walkable cities or transit mm-hmm. friendly development. And I just said to my editor, look, tomorrow I'm going to drive to work and I'm going to leave my house at, uh, we, we you know, new, newspaper hours are relatively civilized. So I'm going to leave my house at 930. The moment I roll out of my driveway, I'm going to start my stopwatch. And at the moment I get to my desk, I'm going to stop it. And then the next day I'm going to do it on transit. We're going to do the exact same thing. Mm-hmm getting uh and i could pull the exact numbers but basically it was either 27 minute drive or like a 108 minute walk plus multi modes of transit plus walk
1: and that's that's in toronto uh right?
0: I was up in the i was in the 905 suburbs, oh, up the time, 905 but, suburbs. okay but Fair. still like the the oh. physical distance was not great which is what well, was not huge which is a 27 minute drive or yeah it's like it was, oh. it was it was over. It was over 140 minutes. And the flip. Uh, sorry, side, over was, an hour and 40 minutes.
1: The flip side I will say to this is, in a place like Calgary, we're actually getting really smart in terms of how we're planning our neighborhoods and especially our suburban neighborhoods. The suburban neighborhoods that are getting built out in Calgary are not all cookie cutter houses into the into the abyss. Now they're suburban neighborhoods that are that are designed around um, mixed affordability. So you and have a commercial core, right? Yeah, there's a commercial yeah. core that everybody can walk to within that within that little community. Dry cleaners,
0: I, shops, pharmacy. Yeah.
1: And then ideally that commercial core also has transit access and it's also um, some of them have um, have lakes, which are great, the great community amenities. Um, They have built in walking paths and parks as part of these communities and also there's mixed density. So you have sort of uh, uh, condos in the commercial core, you have townhouses right behind it, then you have the single family houses, and then you can even have estate houses. And all of these are kind of in the same walkable core community. And yep. that's the way we're planning out these these um, suburbs now. Are they still car dependent? Yes. Are they not nearly as car dependent as the old suburbs? Also, yes. And it's providing a really good, interesting mix of options for people. So, I mean, I think that's probably the way of the future but again you can't grow at the rate that we're growing without well also living in this fantasy that new major road projects are not going to be part of this conversation they just are moving along like and subscribe to like the line and,
0: and just one one quick funny note before we move on that you want know it's okay. hilarious so when I got off the bus yesterday uh, mm-hmm. to walk home one of the reasons the buses were getting in so much trouble is they couldn't get up a hill because it was slippery and we're talking about transit dense neighborhoods the buses were themselves creating a traffic jam because there's so many of them so they were being turned around i had to walk by a like a lineup of buses and do you know what each bus has on the back of it oh no the logos of its funding partners mr oh, jurisdiction no. <laughs> and those funding partners are the city of toronto the province of ontario and the government of canada right yeah fuck you like and subscribe <laughs>
1: okay do we want to talk about uh the crazy oil and gas ban or do we want to talk about my weird adventures in committee
0: let's stick with the fuck you theme so tell me about charlie angus's latest brainwave
1: okay so i mean i don't want to fixate on this too much uh charlie angus who's sort of known a known raconteur uh M- MDP, mp um proposed this interesting bill that would effectively criminalize oil and gas advertisements so paid oil and gas advertisements so if you were uh you know if you're sitting here and tweeting oh i like oil and gas that would be fine if you're an ordinary person but if you you it would prohibit something like shell from taking out an ad in the walrus talking about their carbon capture um initiatives that kind of thing right and i mean obviously you and i are definitely more on the pro-free speech side on this one, like the idea that you you would outlaw oil and gas advertisements is insane from my perspective, just intuitively.
0: Mine too. But
1: but I would also point out that when I actually read the bill, and again, I don't want to fixate too much on this because I mean, who knows if it will go anywhere. People can propose bills and they they die in committee, whatever. Um, So this might not go anywhere. We all know also the NDP are not government, they're, they're, you know, propping up the government. Okay,
0: I have a point to make about that, but I'll let you finish, okay, so but let's, like, let's, I'll come let's back look, to look, that.
1: Look, look, it's totally possible that this bill goes nowhere. I don't want to lose my mind about it just yet. But I would say that when I was reading the preamble of the bill, and maybe we'll do a screen grab of the preamble, a whole lot of the justification for this kind of infringement upon paid speech was rooted in the uh, uh, the tobacco advertising bans whereas tobacco uh, we know that the tobacco companies have engaged in sort of dodgy practices in order to minimize the health risks of their product in the past and we know that this product has a severe uh, negative effect on canadians health this this was the reasoning the logic that was used to bring in Bans on on advertising, not only bans on 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 tobacco advertising, but also compelled speech, also um, uh, forced warning labels on the packages themselves, Mm. graphic warning labels on the packages themselves. This is also why Canadians can't get access to a lot of um, sort of boutique American tobacco products because they won't put these these warning labels on 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 the packaging. So this was sort of seen as a uh, a reasonable impingement on free speech obviously this was this past the oaks test just a second i'm gonna yell at my kid um and i think that to some extent it it, it the free speech implications of the, these kinds of bans were kind of poo-pooed at the time that was like well you know this is a bit of a tobacco is a bit of a special case this isn't necessarily a slippery slope but in charlie angus's preamble the exact same reasoning and logic is be now being applied to the social harm and the and yeah. the environmental harm caused by the oil and gas industry. And I'm just like, "Oh, I guess it was a slippery slope then." Now, wasn't it? Like honestly, when I was reading the preamble to this, it almost made me want to <laughs> Down the tobacco advertisement bans, like that's that it had the exact opposite of the fact to the to the to the persuasive one that Angus was making. I was like, well, I guess these sorts of uh, 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 forms of logic and persuasion can be used to shut down um, people whom a political party is opposed to for their own sort of ideological ends and reasons. Hmm, good to note. So yeah, I was mm-hmm. almost tempted to bring a cigarette into the uh, into this podcast yeah. and smoke it. See
0: Just it's... casually, yeah. Just casually. Well, future episode of the Line pro- Podcast brought to you by Marlboro, real tobacco for mm-hmm. real listeners. Um <laughs> I re- yeah, it, look, I mean the original tobacco bans were justified almost as almost being textbook examples of the reasonable limits that we talk yeah. about in our charter on things like freedom of expression, freedom of sure. association. Yeah. It was, a, it was a reasonable limit. It was argued to ban products that had been deceptively advertised to a group of people. It was now killing and okay. Yeah. I thought it was kind of stupid. I remember when all the uh, tobacco advertising vanished off sports teams and, and things like that. And then we've kind of incrementally gone further and further from there. I don't know what it's like in Alberta, but like in Ontario, you walk into a gas station, all the smokes are hidden behind shutters.
1: Yeah, same. Like you can't people. even
0: yeah. see them, right? Like, yeah. you, you know, look, you can't argue with success, I guess, to an extent. The smoking rate, I think it's starting to plateau a bit, but like it, on a generational timescale, it's way down.
1: I can not I, I can hardly think, think of anyone
0: up, so. I know who smokes.
1: Yeah, but now vaping's gone up. I think vaping has yeah. replaced smoking in a big yeah, way. Yeah, that's right? true.
0: I know a lot of vapors. Um, you no, know, it's, it's just, you know, look, it's interesting just as a matter of generational change, right? I'm in my early 40s and my parents were non-smokers, but when we had a house party, my parents would get out the ashtrays. Mm-hmm. You know, and there would be the big bowl of chips on the coffee table and an ashtray in case any guests decided to to, to light up.
1: Well, and also, I'm not sure that you can put that totally on the advertising bans so much as you can a very significant awareness about the risks followed by a cultural shift. There was a significant oh, hand hand. Yeah, and but profound yeah. cultural shift, right? So the bans, because they were in line with that cultural shift, I think were tolerated. Um, Cause and, and effect, they're...
0: chicken egg. Yeah, I get yeah, it. Yeah,
1: exactly. Now. I think that when you start now, I'm not necessarily arguing for the benefits of oil and gas, but the idea that- it's just dumb. No, it's too far. That, that, is, that yeah. is that is a radically too far um, position to not permit an entire industry to allow itself to make its case. Outside you don't have, of- you know. I, I, I hate this idea because it, it goes into this notion that speech is has a brainwashing effect on people like advertising, it's not that there's no symbiotic yeah. element between the the receiver and the receive. No, it's, it's a top-down thing where you put out an advertisement and people are brainwashed. They can't think for themselves all of a sudden. subscribe
0: like, to the line, send Scribe us to your the money. Line. Yes, exactly. Um, well, the other issue is outside of very rare uh, cultural or religious ceremonies, tobacco has no redeeming value. Tobacco sure. is a poison that is addictive. And, and I, I don't even say this as a, as a moralizing guy. I've smoked the odd cigar in my time, usually around special occasions. So I'm not precious or preachy about this. But, yeah, I can't go out there and, and make the case for tobacco in the way that I can go out there and make the case for oil and gas, which is it stops us from freezing to death.
1: Yeah, but and you can we- also make the same argument for alcohol. Alcohol has no redeeming virtue. Alcohol is a poison. Alcohol is one of the most harmful drugs known to mankind, so should we ban alcohol advertising?
0: Oh, and when people do make that argument, well, people um, do, right? What I would what I would say the the point I wanted to come back to on your point is whether or not the bill will go anywhere. Probably not. That that would be my guess. But this just strikes me as interesting. Uh, did we talk on the podcast last week about the speculation that the confidence and supply deal was going to collapse?
1: I don't remember I if we, we did. did. I don't remember if we did.
0: So there.
1: Oh, uh, we did. Yeah, we did talk about. I remember. I remember. I think we did. We did talk about it in the dispatch, didn't we?
0: I think we did, yeah. Yes, we yeah. In, the dis, in the written dispatch we did. I don't remember if we talk about it uh, on the pod.
1: Um, Listeners, just so you know, we forget everything we write about thirty seconds after we hit God. the publish button. It's completely etched.
0: Um No, there. I don't know what's going to happen with the confidence and supply deal between the NDP and the Liberals. And even if it does end over pharmacare, because Jugmeet Singh, the NDP leader federally, has been talking tough on that, saying that he, he needs results by the end of the month, blah blah blah. Even if the deal falls through, and it might, doesn't mean the government falls. The, the, the NDP could choose on an issue by issue basis to keep the Liberals in power, or as I as uh, we wrote in the dispatch, they can all decide to go pee at the same time every time a confidence measure comes up, and the government, even though in a minority, can outgun the Conservatives in the block. So there's a lot of different options here. But I do think the NDP is in an interesting position right now because it is theoretically possible, I think unlikely because of vote splitting, but we could see if the Liberals drop a few more points in the polls and if the NDP captures some of that, we could see these parties in a in a, at least a national average tie. The,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the Liberals would still have a major seat mm-hmm. advantage, but you could also easily sketch out a scenario where the NDP is the biggest loser in the next election. Even if we do end up getting like a 200-plus seat Pierre Polyev majority, the Liberals might end up flipping some NDP seats even as they lose a bunch of the Conservatives here. And I just don't know if the federal NDP is going to be able to continue to function as a weird amalgam of like a rural working class party with a downtown white-collar woke party. And the weird thing about this motion this is the kind of motion I would expect to come out of downtown Montreal or downtown Toronto, mm-hmm. not from Charlie Angus, who represents one of those yeah. blue-collar working-class ridings. Mm-hmm. And I, ju- I just look at this, and I just don't know what the fuck is happening.
1: Well, and also to me, it's a very confused thing, because the NDP also has an interesting path here. I think there's an equally plausible outcome where in the next election, the Liberals are wind, and by that I mean W-Y-N-N-E-D, as in former... Uh-huh. role leader Kathleen win um or they're just completely destroyed as a party in which case what we move to is more of a two-party system between the conservatives of the NDP where the NDP pulled the balance of power of the left of the people on the left like there's a two there's a two election strategy here for the NDP to form a majority government I don't think they have a one election strategy right now but this but this is the problem is that they're not thinking they're not thinking ahead through they're uh-huh. not dreaming big enough here if the liberals collapse totally and they stop propping them up, you know, you can make an argument that the, that the plurality of votes in Canada lean center center left, in which case it could be them. So, you know, but they have to start, I don't know, they got to get themselves out of their loser mentality and start manifesting their own big wins. You know what I mean? Like, but the, I, I don't know if they can... If they can do that i think they might have been so beaten down as like political movement that they can't conceptualize those outcomes for themselves so i have uh, this stuff is not helping them let's just put it that way
0: no i agree with you on that i did ask a, a friend of mine who is a polling nerd and i just said don't don't spend a lot of time on this but do a quick number crunch here what would even a wipeout scenario look like for the liberals like invent the worst possible scenario you can imagine for the liberals within within reason how many seats are they left with and he still came back to me with 40 or 60 so i think it would be hard for the ndp to displace that
1: okay but that's 46 this is why i'm saying two to three election two to three election strategy because they go to 40 and 60 trudeau has to resign the liberal party has to replace him the liberal party has to replace him despite the fact that they've completely obliterated their grassroots and turned the party into a leadership cult essentially personality cult they can't replace him with anybody who is as compelling or interesting to the remainder of their base second election goes in they collapse totally right like, anything's there's, possible there's that's where i think that if i was the ndp that's that's the path i'd be looking for to form government to form a a, a a majority government and in which case they could be the woke party that's fine allow the party to split allow the the, the the electorate to split Let, allow the conservatives to have the blue-collar worker types that would create some interesting tensions within the conservative movement but fine and then you become center center left wokies
0: right it takes a lot and again, any looks to your point, yes. On a multi-election strategy, anything's possible. Ex- extend extended far enough into the future, we can come up with scenarios to cover everything. Sure. My sense is that the natural resting place for the liberals in opposition is somewhere between 80 and 100 seats. And to get much below that, they have to have a bad election. And even in a wipeout, they're probably sticky at 50 plus or minus 10 so I,
1: and i guess i'm just being influenced by what i've seen in, at the provincial level and i think Raheem did this interesting piece for us it seems to be across the provincial level we're, we're moving away from three-party systems and into two-party systems and the liberals are getting creamed at every single corner and i just think it would be of a trend to see that trend yeah. carried on into the federal sphere but ontario anyway we'll wanna...
0: actually tell though because the provincial liberals in ontario have had two catastrophic elections mm-hmm I think if they have a third, they're done. But I also think it's possible that under the relatively popular, relatively pleasant Bonnie Crombie, the new liberal leader, if she sticks the timing on being in place right as Ontarians decide they're sick of Doug, Mm -hmm. Ontario liberals could come roaring back. And whether or not that would mark a restoration or some kind of Justin Trudeau 2015 bounce, I don't know. Is, is Jester
1: Trudeau the next generation of the Liberal Party or was or he the dead, dead, dead cat, cat that, that is the question that I think we still have unanswered in Canadian politics. And I don't think we're going to answer today, but I do want to move on. Like and subscribe to the line.
0: Like and subscribe. Like
1: and subscribe. Do it. You like are getting sleepy. You want to talk um, about
0: um, testifying in Parliament again?
1: Yeah, weird You're one. are such a
0: grown-up now. Look at you.
1: <laughs> look at me. So mm, I was testify. asked to testify in Parliament. Um
0: Again. You've done this Again,
1: before. I've done this before to the Heritage Committee. Um, so this one was a bit weird. So I got approached on this one because the, the what they were going to talk about was the, from what I could understand, the creation of creating, sorry, the the creation of a national forum on media to sort of address the collapse of the mainstream media. But it wasn't like they were proposing holding this forum. Rather, they were proposing that the national media hold this forum and then they would be invited to it. Huh. So I was one of the people who was brought in to talk about it. And once again, like there's nothing really more disillusioning toward your your, your concept of parliamentary democracy than actually- in parliamentary democracy. Than parliamentary democracy. <laughs> than actually testifying at a committee meeting because what these committee meetings are supposed to be is they're supposed to be interesting discussions about issues where the relative partisan actors are bringing in witnesses that that they think are gonna be sympathetic to their side. But nonetheless, it's still a conversation. It's still a discussion. And what I found is that particularly in the more contentious um, committee meetings when it came to C18, it wasn't that at all. There was no actual discussion. Everybody was talking over one another. And all it was was the partisan actors calling on their witnesses to give their talking points so that they could score their, their political points and then they moved on. So it meant that the actual bill wasn't actually being challenged in a way that the government would would ultimately consider and accept instead what it was it was just a thunderdomey theater that's all it was and that means that the bills aren't being properly scrutinized they're not being properly challenged they're not being properly means tested you know what i mean um and that's why i think a lot of the bills coming out of this particular parliament suck now they're probably they get killed, either fail
0: or they get killed by the courts.
1: Or they get killed by the courts or they just get killed by the participants or they just they're they're just poorly written bills that aren't clear that then get passed on to the regulatory bodies to fix somehow. Right. And that's what definitely we saw with C-18. So I got brought in to talk about the idea of having some kind of national news forum not held by the committee, I think. It wasn't actually clear to me what we were there to testify about or for so they want us to
0: throw a party and invite them
1: I think so I think that they want us but rather than they also want us
0: to invite like their crush
1: do we have to cover the drinks tab was kind of the question I brought up during committee because I mean if you're going to have a bunch of journalists in the room there's going to be an open bar someone's going to have to pay that bill I'm 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 voting for the taxpayer
0: carry you back Uh, to the hotel again
1: yeah exactly so I'm just like I wasn't it wasn't clear to me what what are you Like, if you want to hold a national forum on the media just hold a national forum on the media like yeah
0: just put know, it up Like, to... do it on Parliament Hill have the Parliament Hill guys cater the thing and we just show up uh,
1: we'll just show up that's fine or or We're drinks or well, the other thing I was thinking like okay maybe national me- news media candidate the lobbying arm is already planning to hold some kind of a forum and they're trying to gain some kind of democratic legitimacy to this forum and so that's why we're hosting this committee meeting and i just was like the only testimony i could provide was i'm not even opposed to a national forum but if you're going to hold a national forum then have a diversity of voices have an actual conversation have a lot of different ideas get proposed and discuss the, the issues but don't put yourself in a situation where you're creating a national forum to provide PR cover for a foregone conclusion. If you're just holding a national forum because news media, New, news media Canada wants another big fat check from the government, stop wasting everyone's time. Like if you're gonna, if you're gonna cut the legacy media a nice big fat check, just cut them a nice big fat check and allow us to criticize you accordingly. Don't go through all the the rigmarole of of some kind of faux democratic forum when we all have, when we all know that's not what the exercise is here and I think that's kind of what annoyed me but the point that I just made at committee was twofold and uh, I had a great moment with Nikki Ashton from the NDP which is great because normally we would disagree on everything else but you know my committee was twofold it was like look the, the federal government already has two massive clubs that they can use to address um, the decline of journalism and the democratic deficit that they're hoping to uh, ameliorate as a result of that decline the CBC You need to radically rethink the CBC, like you already are spending like what 1.2, 1.4 billion dollars on the CBC annually, so this is, this is a, a tool that you already have to address these issues that already reports to Parliament, that already exists and has existed since 1936, and that you already have a mechanism for funding. So, if you have a concern with the democratic deficit as a result of bad journalism, That should be your first port of call, the CBC. Let's look at the mandate. Let's look at the output. Let's look at trust levels. Let's address that. The second club that you have already at your disposal is the um, uh, conditions of the licenses that you have appointed. Yeah, the broadcasting licenses that you appoint through the Broadcasting Act. So again, not to get too deep into it, but Canada is a giant series of oligopolies, including a telecommunications oligopoly, a group of companies get privileged access um, through the regulatory market, they get privileged access to the Canadian market to provide cell phone services, broadcast television, all of these things, and um, they be- are enormously profitable. I think, I think last time we talked about Bill, we looked at their profits, they're making something like oh, $10 billions, billion dollars a year, they make billions of dollars as a result of this privileged access that they get to the Canadian market. If they want to broadcast in Canada, they need a broadcasting license because, of course, to broadcast on a on a electromagnetic spectrum that's that's a public asset Mm -hmm. so they need to get access to a public to a broadcasting license in order to broadcast on that public electromagnetic spectrum and we have already put in conditions for their access to that electromagnetic spectrum in the licensing so the licensing already has license a language around canadian content around public goods content public use content all all the rest but what we don't specify in those licenses is, for example, we don't have a clause in there that says you have to devote X amount of your profits to something like a public good like journalism. We could very easily, well, not easily because it's it's lobbyist infest, infested and Bell and all the rest would scream, but you could pretty easily go to those broadcasting licenses and say, if you want access to a broadcast to, to broadcasting spectrum in Canada, you need to devote... A billion dollars of your profit to journalism in which case i don't care that broadcasting journalism isn't making you money it's a cost of doing business in order to get access to this privileged money-making highly profitable market for you and i just thought that that was such an obvious like we spent two years dicking around with c11 and c18 uh-huh. while completely ignoring the incredible powers of the state that they had right in front of them that they could have utilized to encourage these companies to engage in the public good of creating high quality journalism. And I just, I couldn't, I still can't wrap my head around this. Like the the tools are there. They're already in legislation. They, They would require relatively minor amendments to legislation and you would just have to ignore the screaming of these companies who would get angry about it. Fuck you, I don't care
0: moving on is that our third party fuck you
1: that's the third party fuck you but anyway so anyway but this whole committee wasn't even set up to discuss this I mean what was really a shame about this committee is that I really thought that it was an interesting set of witnesses everybody who was there called from their respective parties had interesting things to contribute and say But because nobody had any idea what the hell we were there to talk about everybody was like look these are my opinions and what's going on in the media I guess it was the weirdest shit ever they just so, want us to throw a
0: party and invite them. They're lonely. I think
1: I think they just want us to throw or they want their lobbyists or their preferred whatever's to throw a party and invite them. So we'll see if I get invited to the national forum and we'll see how bullshit that is.
0: If you do, can you bring me?
1: Oh, I would think so. That'd be fun. Like like I said, I brought this up in committee. The real question for me is who's holding who's hosting the drink tabs?
0: I would hope the taxpayers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's the least they could do for us. Come on. Thanks, man.
0: Canada. Like Thanks, and subscribe.
1: Canada. Don't worry, I'm a cheap date. I don't drink very much.
0: Oh, but when you do drink, it's hilarious. (laughs) Shut up. Um.
1: Oh, we should probably announce that. We'll we'll announce this at the end of the podcast. But we're going to have. Do we have
0: anything firm to announce yet? Yes, we do. Okay. Uh, I mean, you're you're running that operation. Stay tuned to the end of the. Stay tuned to the end podcast so that
1: for an important announcement about fun things and drinking.
0: Um. Well, let me let me add this first. So. I oppose on business and philosophical ideological grounds, government support for the traditional legacy media. Ooh. I've made my peace with CBC and, and, uh, other public broadcasters and for disclosure, I take their money. So, but you do you know, not there's... take their
1: money if you're going to work as a freelancer in Canada. Yeah. 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 The, entire, no, I... the entire market is, is basically government subsidized to a greater to lesser
0: degree now. Um, but what I would say is that, like, what I've always said is that I oppose this on business grounds and on philosophical grounds. Yes. But if you're going to do it, do it simply and do it directly,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is to say the government basically goes, here's a billion bucks a year that we're giving to Post Media, The Star, CTV, and it's going to be linked directly to jobs. And mm-hmm. they are, to an extent, starting to, to to partially move in some of that direction. But What the government did instead, particularly with C-18... And I don't think it was anything more complicated than them wanting – becoming like falling in love with their own brainstorm, which Mm -hmm. was, oh, okay, we need to do something about the media, but we also need to do something about big tech. Wouldn't it be amazing if we find a way to do both at the same time? So instead of basically going, hello, failing media industry, here's money, they're like – here is a piece of legislation which will compel these people we need to be seen as being tough on to give you money. Mm-hmm. And it was stupid. Yeah. But I, I think they fell in love with their own brilliance. I think they read too many of their own press clippings. I mm-hmm. think as has often been the case with any government, but I think in particular, this is a pathology that afflicts our current liberal federal government. They were wildly overimpressed with their own competency and agility on these issues. And instead of getting something relatively straightforward, like to your point, Jen, something you and I have repeatedly publicly advocated for, build out the CBC, put a 20-person newsroom in every city of more than 100,000 people across this country. No. Instead, we spent years alienating Facebook. And like in a recent dispatch not that long ago, we said that a big problem we have with our government is that it is not good at governmenting.
1: It's really bad at it, actually, notably. It's
0: pretty bad at governmenting, and this is an example of this.
1: Can I also just say one more thing about the giving money to the private sector? Because, I mean, essentially what we're doing in Canada, unwittingly, is we're eliminating a private sector media. Yes. We're we're basically halfway there. We're moving to a place where all media in the country, with the exception of you and me and Blacklocks, are government-funded, essentially. And I think that creates all kinds of credibility problems. It creates all kinds of... Um, uh coverage problems we've gotten into that at length
0: I think the but, logic but, is uh, sorry but, not the logic the hub I think is hub, uh, still independent too sure
1: okay but the problem that I have with this also and maybe the national media for it could solve this is that if you want to move us all the way into the line like if you want to essentially create um, a government subsidy scheme that stabilizes the Canadian legacy media and allows it to at least work at a minimum operating standard. I think that we need to hear from these lobbyists exactly how much money that's going to take. Because I think that the other problem is that you've got a a government that thinks that another hundred, another $200 million, another $300 million maybe fixes this problem and makes it go away. And what I think they're not understanding is that the amount of money that they would essentially need to put into the private media sector in order to stabilize it, probably closer to a billion which means you'd probably have to more or less match what you're doing with the CBC, in which case you have to start stepping away and asking, well, what if we did the CBC better, you know, Um, and didn't, you know, manage to totally obliterate the existence of a public, sorry, of a non publicly funded media working, media situation in the country, you know what I mean? Like, so I, like that, that's, I think that the, the candid conversation that we need to start having here, because if you were to want to put another hundred million or 200 million into private media, not only are you continuing to damage the the, the credibility of private media, but at this point it's money, it's, it's water on sand, right? Like it's not actually enough to save anything because the systemic business problems are so entrenched. You need, you need a very, very, very significant, serious um and perpetual government subsidy to fix these problems to prevent these companies from going under and I just don't think anyone is being strictly candid with the government about what the what that number is
0: um this might fall yeah okay fair enough this might fall under though into the realm of things governments have no interest in knowing because it's more convenient for them not to know sure I mean what you're proposing Jen is I mean look you and I joined newspapers that used to have staff of hundreds Mm-hmm. Even large newspapers in this country now often have staff of 20 or 30. Yep. How hard would it be for you and I to sit down and whiteboard out a theoretical newspaper? Here, Here's your layer of senior editors. Here's the departments that report to them. Here's how you'd structure the departments. You have an editor. You have a deputy editor. You have a couple of supporting editors. You got a bunch of reporters if it's a news division. if A bunch of photographers if it's uh, the, the photography department. You just sketch all this out. You come up with a robust like flow chart of what it would cost to staff a modern news institution. And then you assign dollar values Mm -hmm. to those people. And then there's the intangibles, things like business insurance, web hosting space, um, electrical bills, licenses for licensed content, like photos and videos. Like I don't know what the number would be, but I remember talking years ago with one of my colleagues at PostMedia, a senior colleague like what would it cost to run an actual kick-ass newsroom if you were not encumbered by legacy debt for 10 or $15 million, you could have a fearsome mm-hmm. modern digital yep. newsroom Yep. all in. And instead we dicked around for years, alienating Facebook.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Like, Great. and subscribe. Super. Like, and subscribe. I want to take it, do this last part really quick. Uh, protests in Toronto continue pro-palestinians i think it's uh made a march they said i believe from the which yeah
0: so let me let let me give non-toronto listeners a quick geography lesson here uh university avenue in toronto uh, just to the west of the downtown core um well i mean through the downtown core but on the western side of it it is uh where queen's park is the ontario legislature and then it runs south from Queens Park, and then it curves right into the downtown financial core. Um, sure. And you can walk it in 20, 30 minutes. It's 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 beautiful, but it's it's cold these days. Also, it's where the United States consulate is on the southern part. So a few nights ago, uh, a, a group of protesters, I've seen varying reports, but call it 50, maybe 100 people, somewhere in that range. Um, a, a sizable group, but not one of the huge multi-thousand person marches we've seen. Um, marched from Queen's Park to the US consulate as part of a, a protest of the ongoing Israeli military operation in Gaza. And along the way, that part of University Avenue is known by Torontonians colloquially as Hospital Row. There are a series of hospitals and related medical facilities there. Toronto General is there. Princess Margaret is there. The Hospital for Sick Children is there. And so is Mount Sinai Hospital. And Mount Sinai Hospital more than 100 years ago was started by Four or five Jewish women in Toronto who wanted a place where Jewish moms could give birth to Jewish babies in a safe, nurturing environment, and it was started again by Jewish moms. It was staffed by Jewish medical staff. Vol- v- Toronto doctors volunteered their time to get it off the ground. Mount Sinai has grown over the last one hundred years into be an absolute titan of medicine in Toronto. Two of my nieces have been born there, and within the last year, doctors at Mount Sinai Hospital hands down saved the life of a member of my immediate family by providing prompt excellent medical care during an unexpected medical emergency during a more routine medical procedure. I I got a lot of goodwill towards Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is not a Jewish hospital. It's a public hospital, but it honors its Jewish roots by including as part of its signage a stylized Star of David. The, the, the symbol of, of, of Judaism. And Mount Sinai is on the walking path that would one would go down when going from Queens Park to the U.S. Consulate. And uh, earlier this week, there was, in the evening, there was a protest outside, or the protest march was outside. I'm using the most neutral possible language. It was outside Mount Sinai Hospital, and at least one individual climbed onto the awnings uh, by the emergency department and was waving a Palestinian flag. This kicked off an interesting war of words, and uh, it was described by almost everyone, including the Prime Minister, Christopher Freeland, uh, Premier Doug Ford, Mayor Olivia Chow. This was universally decried as an anti-Semitic protest targeting, first of all, a medical facility, which as some of you might remember from two years ago during the convoy protest, this federal government went out of its way to outlaw. And also one that is identified overtly with the Jewish faith in a, in a largely symbolic way, honoring its heritage, but still overtly, there's a fucking star of David on the goddamn building, not subtle. And people who were part of the protest were like, Whoa, this is outrageous. It was just happened to be on our route from Queens park to the U S consulate. And that's true. The problem of course, is that we're not idiots and it did not take long to establish that look the frontage of the hospital is like a few hundred feet it's a building how long does it take to walk 50 or 100 people a few hundred feet a minute or two and if this was oh we, we as we were marching we happened to pass a building with a star of David on it and someone took a photo that would be fine they were there between 15 and 20 minutes
1: and also people were climbing on climbing the, the buildings, waving flags. Witnesses have established flags.
0: a sustained presence in front of the hospital. Hospital staff have said that they were intercepted and intimidated. Uh, cries of intifada, intifada, outside of the building with the star of David on it. I want to reiterate, this is illegal. And also I am so tired, Jen, of being asked to accept things that are, on the face of it ridiculous
1: yes it was just a coincidence that they protested outside the jewish-owned cafe it was just a coincidence that they targeted Heather Reisman outside indigo it's just a coincidence that they're protesting on the overpass in the jewish neighborhood it's just a coincidence i mean bullshit no it wasn't you, you stopped at bullshit the star of david hospital you yeah you stopped at the star of david hospital because it was a jewish hospital hospital come the fuck off of it. And And that's where
0: you were chanting Intifada while waving the Palestinian flag. Well, and and not only that,
1: but but from what I could tell, that the call of Intifada was happening through the course of the entire march. I'm sorry, don't don't stop to tell me about what Intifada really fucking means. Fuck you. Personal journey. Yeah, it's a personal journey um look i have no issue with them protesting in front of the us consulate i have no issue with them protesting in front of the uh israeli consulate i think that's perfectly that's legit those are legitimate targets i have no issue with them protesting in front of christian freeland's um uh, consulate me neither there's a certain point where you have to stop pretending to yourselves and to everyone else that you're not also targeting jews in toronto I'm sorry i refuse to not believe the evidence of my eyes on this that is part of these protests um and i think you know matt and i you and i actually have a pretty wide range of opinions on what we would consider to be um uh, acceptable in terms of protesting what's happening in israel and gaza you yep. know we don't we don't give israel a blank check by any stretch um we have our issues with what's going on in there not that our, our particular objections are relevant to the Canadian context
0: yeah. Netanyahu has yet to return my calls
1: yeah exactly but our real fixation and our real concern is but what's happening here in Canada and the, pol- the politics of all of this and how it's playing out in Canada our real concern also is of course our many friends Jewish friends and neighbors who do feel correctly as if they are being targeted and smeared as a group because of what's happening on the other side of the world. Because they are, (laughs) moving on. We would not accept this if the same thing were happening to the Muslim community correctly. We would be arresting people correctly. That's not acceptable to be targeting any group of people in Canada based on the actions of a foreign actor. And, um. There is... we, we'll be very consistent about this, um, whether or not we're talking about Muslims, whether or not we're talking about Jews, whether or not we're talking about any other group. But I'm not going to pretend that I don't see what's right in front of me.
0: I resent being asked to. Yeah. And that's like that's kind of where I'm coming at this with, which is why I've reserved my most um, party uh, fuck you of all for the people who are attempting to quite seriously tell me that it oh, was it was just it was a sheer coincidence that oh, we sheer
1: coincidence, yeah. stopped
0: for 15 to 20 minutes outside of a hospital with a and big start
1: on, on climbed up on the awning and started screaming and yeah
0: yeah you know what like guys protest all you want march up and down university avenue all you want sure. it's it's a free country um and i i got no problems with this you know the funny thing is dude john i've been stuck or at least i shouldn't say stuck i have found myself in Two pro Palestine protests in the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Just going about my business downtown and stepping out. Oh, they're they're at Union Station, or oh, they're marching through where I need to go, and I've just walked through. The you know, I haven't been I haven't been stopped or harassed or intimidated. And I was with my son in one of those, and he went, "Oh, it's a protest." I'm like, "Yep." I said, "Hold my hand. We'll just walk through them." And that's exactly what we did, and yeah. it was fine. And I got no problem with that. People have a right to democratically gather in public places and chant slogans and and all that stuff and okay but i'm not going to be i'm not going to tolerate being told a ridiculous thing and pretend it's not a ridiculous thing out of desire to avoid conflict or to be polite that targeting a hospital for that kind of a protest is not only illegal it is anti-semitic and fuck anyone who pretends otherwise thank you like and subscribe
1: moving on i think what that's all we have to say to? this week um
0: can I sneak in one more just quickie that kind of occurred to me while we were talking? And It only takes yeah. me about a minute. Go for but it. We, we don't. I don't have a lot to say about the arrive can report this week, um, mm. except that it's bad. It yeah. was really bad, and we we yeah. ran a column by Mitch Heupel earlier in the week about it. And I think I think that says kind of all we needed to say on it. But I don't know if you noticed this: um, the federal court also issued a ruling uh, taking the government to task for their failure to appoint judges.
1: Mm-hmm. And That's right.
0: Uh, I'm, again, I'll keep this brief, but Jacques Gallant at the Toronto Star has just been doing yeoman's work uh, for months writing about very serious criminal charges that are just being thrown out on procedural delays because insufficient judges have been appointed and we cannot convene trials. And too few judges are doing too much work resulting in delays. You know, a judge has a medical emergency or a family crisis and has to take a month off to get chemo or something. And like, Sex, sex assault charges are being thrown out because yeah. there's no slack in the system. So the federal court came out with a ruling this week, basically uh, explicitly chastising the government for uh, its failures on this. And I heard some commentary by the uh, justice minister, um, uh, the federal justice minister basically saying, look, we're, we're appointing a lot of judges. I've appointed 60 some odd so far this year. That's double the historical rate. And two things occurred to me when I heard that. First of all, that is the classic input-output problem that you and I often talk about. We have a failing justice system, and the minister wants to talk about his percentage increase in workload here.
1: Well, no, so the, the whenever, is a failed always, system Input. always get yeah, always get suspicious when you hear politicians talk about things like pace and rate right? Because pace and rate are easy to change on short periods of time. The question isn't whether or not your pace of hiring was good in the last six months. The question is how many judges have been hired in the last eight years.
0: Yeah, or more to the point, the question is not how many judges you have hired in the last six months. The question is, do we today have enough judges?
1: this well, is this is a, this is a banana, potato potato problem yeah. I mean you can you you can move very quickly to do something like appoint judges over a short period of time and then demonstrate that that shows a great rate of hiring. but if your rate was from zero and you went from zero to 60 I'm,
0: that sorry, doesn't, that that doesn't, I'm sorry that that't sorry fix kid, anything yeah. I'm sorry that your child drowned in my pool but just for the record we have doubled the rate of hiring lifeguards.
1: Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Oh.
0: Well. Pardon me. Then. Never mind. How, yeah. How silly of me. I hadn't realized. The other uh, interesting thought I had, and it was linked in my mind from arrive can to this, is that this government and its supporters have been very good, sometimes correctly, of basically going, not our fault. Can't blame Justin Trudeau. It's 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 evil conservative premiers. It's Vladimir Putin. It's global inflation. It's a plague certain fuck-ups like this one whether it's arrive can whether it's just a complete failure to appoint judges whether it's a military procurement system that's collapsed whether it's stephen Deboe having a high-profile job you can't blame danielle smith for that like, do, you, you do, just, we
1: know, do we know why they've been so slow to appoint judges i mean i've heard i've heard rumors about why they've been slow to appoint judges and that it's an ideologically driven thing i just think they're bad at government oh well that might be it like i mean this is like one of the
0: enduring failures of this government is timely execution of important policy initiatives, even right. identified policy priorities don't get done. Hmm. And I don't know, they're just bad at governmenting. And you to the extent that I have an easy explanation, I think it's probably not enough bandwidth at the PMO. So like the PMO seems to basically have 50 or 60 issues to deal with at a time and exact and enough personnel bandwidth to handle like one and a half.
1: Hmm.
0: And that's kind of where we end up. But I just it's always interesting to me to see how people, particularly defenders of this government, react when you can't blame Daniel Smith, when you can't blame Donald Trump, when you can't blame COVID or an invasion in Ukraine or a ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal. The, what they come up with is insane. Also, and I was, don't,
1: don't we hire governments to be able to cope with issues in the face of nope. disasters? Nope. We disasters are normal
0: well. we hire them to mean well
1: crises are part of the, that's normal
0: Doug Ford is there will never not to be
1: there will not be never not be a crisis there will never not be obstinate premiers that that, that this that's government has ordinary, doubled the rate
0: of hiring judges Jen
1: that's the ordinary reality of there, there's always going to be a war there's always going to be a fuck-up there's always going to be a pandemic there's always going to be a, a thing
0: God kinda, damn it Jen, our economic growth leads the G7. (laughs) Inflation is a global phenomenon.
1: It's right. It's a thought terminating cliche. It's perfect. Um, okay. I think that's all we have to talk about.
0: Well, you wanted to mention our upcoming.
1: Oh, Yes, if you're in Calgary, we have booked a theater to do a podcast recording on April 19th. And if you are a paid subscriber, so we're going to have just total cost recovery on the theater, just to, you have to, I think we're going to try and keep the tickets under 20 bucks ahead so that we can pay for the theater to do the recording. Um, and after that, if you are a paid subscriber, you are going to get access to a meet and greet with Matt and I. At a local pub across the street. Um, We're going to have, it's probably going to be a cash bar, but we will have some appies there and it's just going to be a good fun old time with people who are great because of course they're line subscribers. So if you are an unpaid subscriber now might be the time to consider moving your subscription uh, tier up to paid um, because that is going to get you some access to a local social event, and if this is successful, and I highly suspect that it's going to be successful, we're going to try and replicate this across the country. So um, this is just an opportunity to have just an absolutely hilarious night out. Um, I think we're very good company, Matt. We're chatters, but we're very good company.
0: As I've said, Jen's hilarious when she's drunk and it don't take much. So join us in Calgary. April 19th.
1: April 19th. We're we'll have more details more information. to come. We'll have more details to come, but if you're listening all the way to the end, we assume you're you're one of us.
0: One of us, one of us. One of
1: us, one of us. Goobah. Okay,
0: like and subscribe. Bye.
1: Bye. <laughs>